From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. You know, before we get into the the substance of uh, this week at the legislature and before we get into the substance of the, uh, the listening session on the funding formula, I have to pause and give tribute to House Education Committee Chairman Lance Clow, who did who did something fairly amazing as he <laughs> as he ran the hearing Thursday. He managed to torture metaphors of football and baseball all in the same hearing, moving interchangeably from talking about football to talking about baseball to using metaphors from both sports, effortlessly moving from sport to sport. It was like it was like Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders back in the day. It's like it's like Kyler Murray today. And and Kyler Murray, if you happen to listen to a podcast about Idaho education, which I doubt, I'm an Oakland A's fan. Kyler, stick with baseball. You'll be healthier and you'll make more money and you'll help my team. So go Kyler Murray, go A's. You're, you're a great football player, but please play baseball. It was it was an amazing it was it was amazing rhetoric. It was it was you know you know metaphysical metaphors from uh, from from Lance Clow and I just thought you know before we before we kick off the conversation about the uh, funding formula bill we needed to set, throw out a ceremonial first pitch to uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, <laughs> Lance I'm glad honor. I'm glad you enjoyed that so much. If you would like, Kevin, I can trade you Lance Clow's witticisms every morning for Senator Mortimer's uh, poetry readings on Monday afternoon in Senate Ed, and we can switch uh, if, you, if you would really like to uh, have a little bit more of that in your life. But, but Lance Klaus doing the quote of the day, too. That's yeah, been, he is. Uh, that, that's been part of his uh, his thing at House Education. But We like to have a good time over there, well, let me no, tell you. No, there's, there was fun to be had. Uh, but now let's get into the serious matter of it. You know, let's let's try to move the chains here and move the runners over and, and talk a little bit. Because there really was, it, it, it was really the first big hearing, the, the first big opportunity for the public to talk about the funding formula bill, the most important education policy bill we're going to see this year. Yeah, as Lance Clow would say, the leadoff batter uh, fielded the opening kickoff and ran it back for a, for a touchdown. <laughs> We could go on all day like this, people, but uh, but we'll try not to. Uh, but you know, two hours, twenty speakers, um, school administrators coming from from Blaine County to Orofino to to speak. You had the education stakeholder groups uh, weighing in, and some definite themes emerged as uh, the public spoke out on this bill. Yeah, and, and this, just to back up, this, we anticipate when it actually makes its debut, this will be the biggest education bill of the session. This is the bill that we've been talking about and writing about every week to rewrite Idaho's public school funding formula. And in simplest terms, what it would do would be ditch the 25-year-old attendance-based funding model that we have and oh. replace it with an enrollment-based funding model where the idea would be that the money would follow the student and it would take into account hallmarks of our 21st century education landscape, including student mobility, uh, the expansion of classroom technology, dual enrollment, and the proliferation of charter schools. All those things, including the internet, have basically come into widespread use 
since Idaho passed its last funding formula rewrite. And so that's, in simplest terms, what they're looking to do with the new funding formula. But it gets infinitely complicated after that point, right, Kevin? Right, right. And that's and where we, the details are where the, the issues come in. Right, and that's what we kind of heard on Thursday, or one of the things that I heard, is that nobody is saying we should keep the attendance-based formula. Everybody seems to be on board with the idea of shifting to something that's based on enrollment, which goes back to Governor Butch Otter's task force mm -hmm. in 2013. Correct. That's where this recommendation came from in the first place. But how do you get to that enrollment-based formula, and what does it look like? That's where the, uh, that's the rub at this point. The details and how it would work and lots of concerns about the mechanics of it and some of the details in this 59-page bill. And it was kind of right out of the gate uh, in terms of the public hearing on Thursday where folks started to express not specifically direct opposition, but concerns with a number of things that they would like to see addressed or potential uh, problems down the road. And it started, interestingly enough, with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra, who in November, well, had sat on the interim committee that developed uh, kind of the bones of this proposal and voted in favor of the recommendation in November. You know, fast forward to Thursday this week, she's speaking, and she did preface everything, preface everything saying that I don't want you to construe these comments as I'm for or against the proposal. However, I'm going to speak for 10 minutes about things that I have concerns with that could really yes. create problems for districts. And she outlined everything from potential cash flow problems mm -hmm. uh, to uh, clarity about how uh, different aspects of the bill would work, you know, different laws that might need to be changed. So she really, and she has the benefit of working with some of the top school finance experts in the state who are employees of hers at the State Department of, Ex of Education, real subject matter experts here. But she got down into the nitty gritty and, and said, you know, I have several concerns here, several things that may need to be ironed out. And this could lead to several perhaps unintended consequences for our school districts. And she was one of the ones that was really talking about the cash flow issue and some of the things, whereas other people had focused about maybe how the career ladder salary law is treated or questions over this confusing wealth adjustment mm -hmm. that um, is part of the proposal right now. Right. And those were two of the recurring criticisms that we heard on Thursday. The one about the wealth adjustment, it seemed like almost everybody who spoke doesn't like the wealth adjustment. I mean, you had the education stakeholder groups uh, criticize it. Uh, Ibarra called it problematic, which may have been one of the nicest things anybody said about the wealth adjustment right. on, on Thursday. Fred Birnbaum from the Idaho Freedom Foundation said, just get rid of it. It's, it's not working. And maybe the most interesting testimony about the wealth adjustment came from Kevin Lancaster. He's the uh, uh, superintendent in the Bliss School District. Yeah. And he, he talked about how 80 to 90 percent of the students in the Bliss School District qualify for free and reduced lunch. The, the, the poverty Which is a me measure of poverty. Right. And that's been the measure of poverty that's used uh, to a large degree uh, to kind of measure the demographics of a community. So, so free and reduced lunch eligibility is something we talk about a lot here for that reason. He said that the situation in Bliss is such that they don't feel like they can ask parents to provide school supplies for their kids. So the school provides uh, supplies to the students at the beginning of the year. But under the wealth adjustment, Bliss would be considered, well, not maybe not a wealthy district, but certainly not a poor district. They wouldn't qualify for the wealth adjustment because that wealth adjustment 
is based strictly on property value within the district, and it's basically it's a it's a division. It's you know, property value uh, over number of students, and you get some sort of a, a wealth index based on that. And what you heard from Lancaster, from Bliss, what you heard from other school administrators is that's really that that doesn't tell you anything about the students. It doesn't tell you anything about the the, the student demographics. So right. a lot of criticism of the wealth adjustment. And it could change. The wealth adjustment could change from year to year based on property values uh, within the district's boundaries. And I can't remember if it was Superintendent Ibarra or others who pointed this out. It could make it a little bit different, difficult for districts to look ahead with their budget to know, okay, uh, we got it. Like uh, Nampa in Canyon County could be an example. Uh, if property values are changing, uh, could they get the wealth adjustment one year, but then they're not the next year? It could make long-term planning, financial planning for districts yeah. a little bit more complicated. That was one of the things that emerged from the testimony uh, for sure on Thursday. Right. And another thing, and you, you foreshadowed it, the career ladder, the concern about what happens with the career ladder in this funding formula bill. So to recap, the money from the career ladder, the money for the career ladder, the, the line item that goes into teacher salaries would go away. The money would go into this pot of money right. that is divided out through this new funding formula. So you no longer have this dedicated source of money for teacher salaries, and that's been a sticking point uh, with education groups. What you have instead in this bill is language that pretty much puts the career ladder into into the bill, into yeah. the, the law, if it became law. And what that means is school districts and charters would pretty much be obligated to honor the career ladder and use the career ladder as a salary schedule. And you had several speakers criticizing that and saying this was never the intent of the career ladder. Uh, we've set it up in such a way that school districts can use the career ladder as a salary schedule if they want to, or they can come up with their own salary schedule if they want to. So that was a that was a recurring criticism. People said as well. it could lead to um, an unfunded mandate uh, is a term that we heard a couple mm -hmm. of times. Right. And I gotta say, I, I had a meeting with a couple of the legislators uh, who have been working on drafting the funding formula bill. I met with them Thursday a couple of hours before this public hearing. And they put a couple of things knowingly either in the spreadsheets or in the draft bill, not necessarily because they wanted them in there, but to have conversation starters. Another reporter who does not work for Idaho Education News called them stink bombs. Uh, but uh, um, they, they put things in there as conversation starters. Uh, they either got feedback at some point during the interim committee process or during the listening session. And so they put a number of different things either in the spreadsheets or in the proposed draft bill to be conversation starters. And I definitely get the sense that the draft bill that we see out there, the 59 pages that exists online, it isn't going to be signed into law. Even if they do adopt a new funding formula this year, that will be massaged and tweaked. And so there is an opportunity uh, to pull some of these things out, put some of these things back in. Uh, but some of those conversation starters, they may have done the trick because that was what some of the uh, folks with concerns picked up on during public hearing. Right. And, and that's definitely true. I mean, there's definitely a lot of... Uh consternation about the wealth adjustment and consternation about the career ladder language. But here's the thing, too, that I took away. And it's not really surprising. It's just a reminder. Anything you do to this funding formula, anything that you add into the funding formula is going to 
you know, it's going to maybe help some schools and it may hinder other schools. Yeah. There are going to be winners and losers with the changes in policy. I'm not talking about winners and losers in terms of dollars, although that's definitely a factor, but winners and losers in terms of the change in policy. Case in point, one of the things that's being talked about being added into the formula now is an adjustment to account for uh, districts and charters that had veteran teachers as opposed to younger teachers. And that's brand new. You know, um, teacher longevity. Yeah. So a factor to help districts that maybe have a more um, more experienced teacher base, uh, more experienced faculty that commands uh, higher salaries. Yes. You heard from Andy Grover, the um, superintendent at the Melba School District, saying, look, what we do is we hire young teachers, we give them a lot of training, we really try to, to train them up, and then in a few years, um, they go to districts elsewhere in the Treasure Valley where they can make more money. And now you're really penalizing us because we're going to be, you know, we're going to get a lesser share of the money because we have a less experienced faculty. We have a less experienced faculty because our, our good teachers are getting jobs elsewhere in the Treasure Valley where they can get a higher salary. Sure. So you're, you're really hitting us hard here. So, you know, I think... You know, that's one of those things. And he talked about it as being an unintended consequence. And I think it's a good point that anything you do, if you give an allowance to a district that is, you know, that has a veteran uh, faculty to help them pay those salaries, you're helping that district, you know, keep their teachers on. But you you, you could be hurting a district like Melba. I mean, that was, uh, you know, Grover's point. So, yeah, if this would know, go this forward. This is such a complicated thing. If this would go forward, there would be districts that, uh, could get the wealth adjustment or miss out on the wealth adjustment. Districts that could get the uh, additional funding incentive for the experienced teachers and districts that would not get it. So you can see how of the amount of money that's being chopped up, that's where the idea of winners and losers comes in uh, that you were talking about. Another thing uh, in terms of winners and losers and dollars and cents, uh, some of the spreadsheets that are available to uh, kind of illustrate the effects of if this policy were brought to light. Uh, you can kind of manipulate the spreadsheets and look around at different school districts and see what kind of money they would, what kind of funding they would expect to get under the new formula uh, versus the current funding levels that they had. Now that had been a recurring theme, uh, especially during uh, the last couple weeks about districts winners and losers and, and districts actually receiving less money going forward than they did right now. A couple of things. Legislators put out a new spreadsheet and um, they've reduced under the latest spreadsheet the number of districts that would expect to lose out. Number drops from like about 36 down to 17 if you assume that the state would put about 90 million dollars more into school funding next year, which is real similar which to the proposal that's the past years, on, the t on the table. Um, and also they did that by lowering the overall base amount of funding just slightly. Um, and so the, there are different proposals out there and different simulations, but they are trying to cut down on the number of districts that would expect to see a funding decrease. They think they have the cost of holding those districts harmless down to about $1.8 million a year. And those are some of the proposals out there. During, if this were to pass into law during the initial, say, three-year transition period, there's a proposal to hold districts harmless, uh, which means infusing extra state funding to make sure districts don't lose, don't receive less funding than they do right now under the change. There's another uh, proposal out there to hold districts positive uh, to basically put even more state funding in the formula so that districts would expect to see a 2% increase based on current funding levels. 
Anyway, you look at it, though, those are temporary uh, proposals uh, that would probably drop off after about three years or so, uh, and then districts would be on their own. That was concern that we heard uh, on Thursday, and we've heard that before, is what happens when you get rid of the, the transition funding. And yep. Do these uh, schools fall off of a cliff financially? Anyway, where do we go from here? Um, the timing, I think, is very interesting. Let's talk about the timing because I think it's important. Um, mm-hmm. Let's go there. Uh, Senate Education Chairman Dean Mortimer talked about how he thinks that it's probably two weeks away from this draft of a bill turning into a bill that could be introduced in a committee, uh, most likely Senate Education from what we've heard. Well, that gets us into the, the third week, maybe the fourth week of February. Time is starting to get tight at that point in the session. I mean, we're at a point where the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee has a schedule uh, to draw up budget bills, including the K-12 budget bill. That's coming up on February 18th. That's a harbinger of the legislature setting a schedule, trying to figure out a time to adjourn sine die. So if this bill doesn't emerge in a legislative committee until the third week of February. It's a very compressed timetable to get it through both houses, to have hearings in Senate education, hearing on the Senate floor, assuming it passes the Senate, then you've got to do that whole process over on on the House side. You know, this could, for all the work that's been put into this issue for the past three years, this may be an issue that doesn't get resolved this year. legislature may simply run out of time and not pass a funding formula law this year. I used to hear former Senate Majority Leader Bart Davis had an expression uh, talking about at the end of the session certain uh, policy ideas or bills just aren't ripe and uh, (laughs) they're not ready for this year. I don't know if that's the case with the funding formula uh, this year or not, but that was a common expression that I used to hear around the State House about uh, end of session negotiations and whether things were ready for prime time or not. Not to say that that's the fate of this bill, but a couple of interesting... No, and I I don't know if it's ripe yet either. I mean, I think that's a really excellent uh, analogy because one of the things we heard Thursday... Several speakers compared this process to the career ladder process from 2015 right. and, the, and the passage of the career ladder law. But a big difference that I see is the career ladder law, it, it, took, it took a long time to get something put together. And you had to go from that tiered licensure proposal that nobody seemed to like yeah. to a couple of different drafts of the career ladder bill to, I think it was the third draft of the career ladder bill, was what eventually passed. With widespread support. And passed with widespread support. And I guess that's kind of where I'm going here, is that once you got to that third draft that everybody seemed to support, well, then the legislative process, it's amazing how quickly the process can go when you've got consensus behind a piece of legislation and you've got the key legislators supporting it. And in that case, you had the education group saying, this is good, let's, let's run with this. I don't know if we're going to get to a point here in the next couple of weeks where you have a a funding formula bill that everybody in the education community is saying, yep, this is a pretty good bill. Let's let's run with it. Because based on what we heard on Thursday, still a lot of concerns coming from the education groups, uh, coming from State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra, coming from superintendents at the local level. I'm having a hard time seeing where there's going to be widespread uh, consensus on this issue that suddenly coalesces in the next few weeks. That would be <laughs> that would be quite a turnaround. I know there are a lot of state house meetings going on, uh, and not just committee hearings, but small group meetings, individual meetings going on sort of 
behind the scenes or behind closed doors to get members up to speed on the proposal. Because you got to keep in mind, some of the folks that have really been pushing this, including House Speaker Scott Bedke uh, and uh, Representative Wendy Horman of Idaho Falls, have been involved with the interim committee for three years, have really been working on this proposal, gathering feedback, and are really familiar with it, whereas you've got a large class, particularly in the House, of first-year lawmakers who are still very much learning the ropes of just basic uh, legislative functions and, and, and just getting up to speed here. This is a complicated, you know, 59-page bill. And so even outside of the education committees where you would have to go to win support on the floor for a proposal like this, a, a big learning curve. Um, and, and I do want to say, right. you know, the, where this is coming from, why we have this proposal. It was rooted in the task force recommendations from 2013, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. But the folks that have been really working on it for the past three years say, we heard and we observed a call within our education system to replace the school funding formula. The old funding formula was complicated, it was confusing, it didn't reflect modern education realities. And so they're saying they're, they heard a call from the field that the system we have is confusing and broken and that we wanted something else and that we wanted something enrollment-based. And so they say, we're trying to listen to the educators. We're trying to listen to the people in the field and, and bring them what they want because we heard the existing uh, situation is, is complicated and confusing and unpredictable. Uh, and we joke about it, but the, literally, if there was a car full of legislative services uh, office officials like uh, Paul Headley and Robin Lockett and Deputy School uh, Superintendent Tim Hill from the State Department of Education, and they left Idaho and didn't come back, we'd really be in trouble here because nobody would know how the current funding formula works. And that's only a slight joke and a slight exaggeration that we like to make around the office. Um, so stay in town, folks. Yeah, we need so, you. So, so we need you. Um, but I don't know. It, it's a lot to go over. Um, People are definitely reviewing the bill, reviewing the spreadsheets. It's something that everybody is talking about, and it's going to keep us busy for the next and several I, and weeks. I think, you know, to you know, to, to kind of riff off of that, if you're a legislator and you're confused about this and you're trying to get up to speed on this, which is totally natural, yeah. totally understandable given the complexity of it, if you don't understand it and you're hearing from your local superintendents or your local trustees saying, hey, whoa, 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 slow down. We don't know how this is going to work. We think it may you know, have a lot of unintended consequences. That's a tough yes vote for a legislator to cast. So it's, it, it, it's a tough process to get this thing out of a committee, to get it passed on a floor, to get it passed on the second floor, uh, you know, get it passed in both chambers. You know, this is a, this is a long and... and very uncertain process at this stage. Yeah. We'll continue to follow it. Not really sure what happens next. Probably more discussion. Like you said, it could be a couple more weeks uh, until an actual bill is introduced via the formal process. Keep in mind, this is just a proposal that exists online. It isn't even a working bill. And I think that's where I want to go next is the overall flow of legislation this year. More than a month into the legislative session, and at least in education circles, haven't really got around to legislating. We, yes, we, we've seen very few bills in either the House or the Senate Education Committees. Just to give you a quick rundown of what we have seen and... And it will be very quick. And it will be a quick rundown because <laughs> there isn't that much to talk about. Um, and some of these ideas are ideas you've heard before. Uh, Superintendent Navarra presented her bill to lift the cap on mastery schools. 
That came up last year. It died in the Senate Education Committee. That bill was introduced on Is Wednesday. Is it back like a zombie bill, Kevin? I, I don't know. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna predict what what lives and what dies here. You have another version of a bill to um, allow charter schools some flexibility in hiring administrators. If that sounds familiar, it ought to. That bill passed both houses in 2018. Governor Otter vetoed it on the last day of the session. Similar bill coming back. Uh, it was introduced in Senate Education on Wednesday as well. Uh, uh, Dean Mortimer has another version of his bill to provide funding and extra help to quote unquote turnaround schools to help low performing schools um, you know, improve their, their student performance. If that sounds familiar, it ought to. Uh, he had a similar bill pass the Senate, get out of the House Education Committee, got yanked off of the House floor on the uh, yeah. In the final hours of the legislative session last year, very similar bill. We've seen a couple of bills in House education this week. Just a no, couple. And ju really just a couple. I mean, there was one that kind of came from out of nowhere, the uh, a bill to allow Teach for America or other non-traditional teacher certification programs to get a share of state funding. That's coming from out of, basically coming from Teach for, for America. Right, it's brought there by their lobbyist. But it's coming with no uh, funding support, no, you know, n nothing in Governor Little's budget or Superintendent DeBarra's budget to, to fund such a, a mechanism. So it'll be interesting to see if that has any legs, if that has any momentum, because it would, there would be a funding component attached to it. On Friday morning, we had, and you were there, so you can pick it up here, a sex education bill introduced in the House Education Committee. But that's about it. We're mm -hmm. five weeks into the legislative session, and we've only had a handful of education bills. You know, it's it's been a very slow session in terms of education policy. Yeah, and just to give you some perspective, I think this is the sixth session that we've covered full time for Idaho Education News every day in the Education Committee hearings. Some years we see forty education bills, sixty education bills. Uh, I think just seven or so this year, right. and, the, and the big one hasn't even come out yet, the funding formula bill. Uh, some of these others, like you said, they're things we saw last year uh, that got sidetracked or got killed uh, at the end of the session, and, and so I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> usually at this point in the session, it's, it's, you know, we're having these shorthand conversations at the State House or here at the office about, hey, what's happening with House bill, fill in the blank number, or Senate bill. And those numbers mean something to us because they're bills that we've been tracking for several weeks and we've seen them kind of weaving their way through the process. We're not even talking that language right now because there's so few bills and there's been so little movement on those bills. I mean, you know, the only one that's even made it to a floor uh, for a final vote is uh, the Mortimer turnaround. And it was held bill. for and 10 it, days or whatever. Held. It so. was on the third reading calendar, which meant it was poised for a vote this week. It's been held. That vote is now scheduled to happen next Friday, uh, February 15th. That could Fridays be are always a light day on the floor, so I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I'm at, uh, I'll, I'll be there, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I mean, but that could be the first floor vote on an education bill of any magnitude six weeks into the session. It's been a very strange session in that regard. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of things going on uh, that we have to consider. The state revenue situation, uh, they're positioning it as a cash flow issue at this point, but state revenues are millions of dollars behind projections. And the new numbers aren't any better. And it's a withholding issue. Some folks are saying uh, that sh could be cleared up after tax day, April 15th. Uh, 
But the best case scenario is that Idahoans will owe more in taxes and get smaller refunds. That's how they're predicting the issue will be rectified because they're saying it's a withholding issue. We also had the federal government shut down for about the first two, three weeks of our legislative session here, casting some additional uncertainty around. We've got new chairs uh, of the Joint Budget Committee, a new chair and new vice chair of the House Education Committee, a lot of new freshman members of the House. And so there is a, a, a number of factors that would explain why this is maybe a slow year. Certainly we have a new governor. Um, leading the charge. Uh, we've, we've got a proposal to change up Idaho's funding formula. And so there's a number of reasons why it's a slow and cautious session, but it's probably the slowest that I've ever seen. I think this is my ninth consecutive year yeah. altogether of being here. Uh, the slowest I've ever seen uh, for sure. I think, I, that I think the cash flow is leading to a lot of caution in a lot of areas. And you even hear it when some of these bills come up. Um, when Ibarra presented her bill to lift the the cap on yeah. the mastery schools, and that is not a budget bill. There is not. I mean, there's a budget component to right. the idea of lifting the cap, but the bill itself, lifting the cap, does not affect the budget. You, you would lift a cap, and then if you had money to add mastery schools, you could. But even when that bill came up, even when the policy bill with no uh, fiscal impact. When that came up in Senate Education on Wednesday, uh, Janie Ward-Engelking, a member of Senate Education who also sits on the Budget Committee, asked Superintendent Ibarra, are we tying the Budget Committee's hands here by lifting the cap on mastery schools? I mean, she's thinking ahead to, yeah. well, if we lift the cap, Ibarra has already asked for an increase in funding for mastery programs. Are you kind of forcing JFAC to fund that? So you've got legislators who are already thinking ahead of if we do this, what's it going to cost, and how is that going to affect the budget? So that may affect mastery. Something I could teach for America bill that you know is a policy bill that doesn't have a budget note attached to it. You know, there, there may be legislators who say, "What are we committing to, and how much would that cost? Sure. And what might that force the legislature's budget committee to do? If not this year, then in some future year." I think it's a very nervous and kind of skittish session because of the cash flow issues, and you factor in all the new faces. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it's slow this year, but it is certainly slow this year. And a lot of, in terms of the cash cash flow issue and the state revenues behind projections, a lot of smart folks are saying that it will be corrected with tax day uh, through smaller than usual refunds and more people owing uh, because the withholdings were wrong. But if they are wrong, everything changes. Right. And, it, and it affects next year, it affects this year. If those numbers don't come back after tax day, if there was something else going on, and, and I don't know that there is, and, and a lot of smart people have said, yeah, it's a withholding issue, we'll clear it up after April 15th. But if it doesn't, oh my gosh, everything changes. Right, and I think there are a lot of legislators, and I think uh, Governor Little is on the same page with them, who would say, look, we would much rather hold off on creating new programs or putting money into new initiatives than to overextend. Until we have it in the bank. Until, until we have the money in the bank. Over, it, the, the, the implications, if you overextend and you've funded a lot of programs and then the money falls off of a cliff, you know, you know that, that, that's yep. a much more difficult issue to, to resolve. Yes. Okay, uh, one more thing that we want to uh, get to this week, uh, kind of a, you, you've been tracking uh, 
some disagreements in a complaint involving one of the largest education stakeholder groups uh, that we work at, with every year. There was a shuffle in leadership uh, with the Idaho Education Association Statewide Teachers Union uh, last, I want to say, October, just before the election. Right before the election. Uh, we got a little bit more information uh, about the possible fallout from that. You've been tracking it. Kind of a sensitive subject here. We don't know everything, but uh, what have you been able to piece together so far, Kevin? Well, it's kind of a a bit of a scorched earth uh, letter that uh, that we obtained a few days ago. Subic Dorsky had been the executive director of the Idaho Education Association until October, and she had been with the union for I want to say more than twenty years yeah, in correct. one capacity or another. She left in October. Circumstances never really were explained. Well, in, in January, late January, she sent a letter to the entire governing board of the IEA with a series of allegations uh, involving the president of the IEA, Carrie Overall. Um, I won't get into all of the allegations. Um, because we've not been able to independently be, back up. Right, because at this point, it is pretty much Sue Wigdorski's assertions that these things happened, and their assertions in a letter. Uh, Wigdorski declined my request for an interview, and I asked her to provide any corroborating documents, any, anything to back up the claims in her letter, and I never did hear back. So at this point, all we have is a letter, and it is a scathing letter. And we have, on the other side, we have a an emphatic denial uh, of everything. They're uh, saying there the wasn't IEA. even a complaint there's against no her. No complaint uh, filed against uh, Carrie Overall by any staffers. Uh, that uh, she has the full confidence of the governing board. Uh, she has the full confidence of the the union that represents yep. the staff at the office. And the union, in their statement, is saying you know that they will pursue whatever avenues necessary to defend. Overall's reputation and the and the reputation of the IAA as an organization. So this is a fairly nasty dispute. And what's what's unusual about it is we don't usually see this kind of a public dispute and this kind of a a picture that suggests a a very dysfunctional working relationship within the the hallways of really one of the most prominent education lobbying groups in the state. Yeah, we know. The letter exists. You had Subigdorsky confirm that she wrote yes, the letter. Yes. We have not been able to obtain any other documents or evidence to corroborate the accusations. And, and I wrote the story with caution with yeah. that in mind. Yeah. I mean, there are things in that letter that, uh, you know, we could not confirm and we had no corroborating evidence. So we, we tried to be you know, very scrupulous in terms of how we presented the allegations. We wanted to present a enough so the readers could get a sense of what's being alleged, with, with you know, but also trying to be sensitive to, you know, the fact that these are, at this point, uncorroborated and unconfirmed uh, allegations. By so, a former employee. By a former yep. employee. So the story is out there. Um, you can read in detail and, and get a sense of what's going on there. And if there are more developments uh, down the road, we will have uh, we will have them. Yeah. And uh, we'll continue to follow the school funding situation. We'll continue to follow any education bills uh, that do emerge uh, this legislative session. We are, I don't want to say it's the midpoint of the session because we're maybe not quite there yet. But once in a couple of weeks, 
the Joint Budget Committee moves in from budget hearings to budget setting, then you can say, okay, the train is on the tracks to wind down the session. We're starting to go through some of the uh, procedures and processes that wind down the session. So that that day will be yeah, coming at, within at a couple point, weeks. You're, you're in you're in the third quarter. You're in the seventh inning, or you know whichever you want to go with. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll set up for the game-winning field goal. Uh, or yeah. the walk-off home run, or both. Who knows? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, a lot going on. If you missed any of our stories and need to dive in, uh, the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org, is a great resource. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, at IdahoEdNews. That's where we break all of our big stories, and we live tweet uh, some of those big meetings, such as the public school so funding formula. Get caught up on the legislature. Stay current on what's happening with the uh, situation with the charter schools in Blackfoot. Our Devin Bodkin continues to track that story. A lot on our website, so uh, check in daily. Yep. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as we explore this often complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Uh, We have a lot of fun, and we will be back next week with another edition of Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.